understand them and to apply them to our lives. And Father, I am grateful that you have given all of us a second chance. Lord, even for many who are in this room right now, perhaps this will be a day of second chance for them. Perhaps like Paul, there's some here that have doubted that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior. And Lord, I just pray that as you help Paul to understand that you are the living Lord and that you offer salvation to all, I pray, Lord, that even in these moments as we open the Word of God and hear the testimony of Paul's conversion, that you might speak to hearts. And Father, pray for us who are Christians. Oh God, you are so good. And we're just grateful, Father, that we have another opportunity to to study in your word. Again, may these moments not be in vain or wasted time. But, Father, lift us to your presence. May we bow at the feet of Jesus and learn from him. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want to, just look at the screen because for the next few minutes, I want to share some things. We're going to share the scripture again. I hope that you're not letting the scripture on the screen substitute for you bringing your copy of the scriptures, okay? But as we have been studying for the last several months, we've been talking about God being a second chance God. And we've talked about how the Bible is full of people whom God gave second chances. Perhaps you're getting tired of seeing this overhead over and over again, but folks, it's just these are just examples, okay? God gave a second chance to Peter and the disciples. We studied out of Matthew 26 to Jonah, the rebellious and wayward prophet in the book of Jonah, the woman at the well in John 4, the woman caught in adultery, John 8. And last Sunday, we began studying about Saul, who was a persecutor of Christians who became Paul the preacher. So now let's read Paul's conversion experience in Acts chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he journeyed, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed about him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, go to the street, call straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered. Now listen to this. Ananias just being honest with the Lord. Lord, I've heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon thy name. 
But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen. And I want you to underscore that. He is a chosen. He is chosen. Folks, this absolutely blows my mind how God chooses sinners to not only enter into his kingdom, but become instruments in the gospel kingdom. Listen to this. Go for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. How hard that must have been for Ananias. This man was known to terrorize and to kill Christians, and here he addresses him as brother. That means brother in the Lord. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and he was baptized and took food and was strengthened. For several days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And look at these verses. And in, in the synagogues, immediately he proclaimed Jesus saying, folks, look at this. Jesus is who? He's the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called on his, on his name? And he has come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests. But Paul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now, how great and strong was his preaching? Well, verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Is this not irony in this story? The man who came to kill Christians has become a believer, a person of the way, a follower of Jesus Christ, and now the Jews are plotting to kill him. And folks, as I mentioned last week, I want to just point out two verses that I pray. Um, let me back up just a minute. Here's a brief summary of last week, okay? Here's a brief summary. I just got this up here because I want you to see this. If you weren't here last week, Paul, before meeting the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, number one, he was caught up in his personal pride and self-righteousness. He was a persecutor of the church, the people of the way. He was a leader of the church's first widespread persecution. He was killing, imprisoning, intimidating the early Christians. He was trained in man-made theology, but didn't know the living God until Acts 9. And in Paul's own words in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 through 15, Paul is the chief among sinners. But remember, Paul comes to know Christ that day, and in the book of Acts, there are three times in which Paul's conversion is given. These verses that we've read this is Luke's account. Apparently, Paul himself told Luke how he was saved. And then in Acts 22, and I give you these, these scriptures so that you can read them and study them and compare them. In Acts 22, Paul gives his testimony before the crowd in Jerusalem. In Acts 26, before King Agrippa. And then Paul, in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verses 4 through 9, tells about his life before Christ. And as you and I read and study about Paul, I hope that you'll keep these two scriptures in mind. First of all, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That day on the road to Damascus, Paul became a new man, a man in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to say this later on, but folks, that becomes one of the cornerstones of Paul's theology and understanding about Jesus. That when you and I trust Jesus as our Savior, we are then in Christ. And that old sinful man has passed away, and we are a new creation in Jesus Christ. And also Paul wrote in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God. Remember last week we said that's the, the, where the word dynamite comes from, the Greek word for power. It is the dynamite of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentiles. And folks, as you and I begin this morning, let me again share some thoughts after thinking about what Paul has done and was doing to persecute the early church and the Christians. How many Christians had Paul either killed or had someone else killed? Now, we're not told how many. How many children were left fatherless or motherless or homeless because of Paul's rampage against the church? How many churches were threatened and perhaps even broken up by Paul? And folks, what you see in Paul's life before the road to Damascus experience is a man who was an instrument of Satan and hell. And if there was ever truly a terrorist, it is the man Paul. And you remember last week as we closed, we said, with all this in mind, what does God do for Paul? Now, surely Paul would have been worthy of the, of the judgment of God. Surely Paul would have been worthy if God would have just struck him down and taken his life. But folks, what does God do? Well, let me read these words out of Romans chapter 5, verse 6, 7, and 8. While we were yet sinners, or while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. While one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, one will dare even to die. But look at verse 8, and you know this verse well. But God shows or proves or demonstrates his love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Folks, I will never read the writings of Paul without having this concept in mind that Paul knew that he was the worst sinner that had ever lived on the face of the earth, but Jesus Christ saved him. Let me read some more words. And I, these come out of a, a book entitled The Heart of the New Testament by H.I. Hester. Uh, and, and I'll just give you again some perspective. Saul has succeeded in making his name a terror to all Christians in Jerusalem. Is there anybody in our day that you think about as a terrorist or someone who has done bad things against the church and against Christianity? Well, the Apostle Paul would be at the head of this list. At least temporarily he had scattered or silence most of the Christians in Jerusalem, he thought. And because he had done such a good job of scattering the Christians in Jerusalem and quieting them, Paul began to look for other regions that he could go to for Satan to destroy the Christian faith. And it's thought that perhaps he had gotten reports of a strong group of believers who were in Damascus. And again, folks, remember in this day, there's no automobiles, no trucks, no bus lines. To go 150 miles would be quite an effort. 
And Paul would have to travel 150 miles north of Jerusalem to get to Damascus. But he is so determined to carry his crusade to that city to destroy Christians and the Christian churches there. He secures the proper papers for the arrest of Christians in Damascus to bring them back to, to Jerusalem. The trip would have taken from six or seven days travel. But folks, I, I can't prove this. No one can. But don't you think that the Lord was dealing with, with Paul? Folks, it's something that stands out in my mind. You remember that uh, we mentioned last week that the first mention of Paul is back in Acts chapter 7. And I want to read, this is going to be on the overhead again. I want to read these verses to you, okay? Acts chapter 7, beginning with verse 55. But he, Stephen, remember Stephen, one of the ones chosen to serve tables or what we would call a deacon. Stephen began a ministry of preaching and teaching and testifying that Jesus was the Christ. Well, the the Jewish rulers in, in, in Jerusalem got so upset that they, they eventually stone him to death. But listen to this. As they are questioning him, as they are getting ready to stone him, it says, But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, folks, is this something made up? Absolutely not. Stephen saw this vision of heaven. And he said, Behold, now here he's got this gang who wants to kill him anyway. And this is what Stephen said. He said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together upon him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So Saul is here and he's witnessing this stoning of Stephen. And as they were stoning Stephen, Stephen prayed. Now listen, I believe the Apostle Paul heard Stephen say this prayer, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep and Paul was consenting to his death. Folks, what is the importance of those words? Words. I believe that even though Paul was actively carrying out his crusade against Christians, in his heart and mind he is battling as he remembers Stephen's peace as he sees him die, being stoned to death for his witness for Jesus Christ. Let me ask you something. Have you ever, and, and, and this is not something that, that you, you desire to be a part of, but have you ever witnessed a faithful Christian dying? And there's always a peace about them and in their surroundings. I'll never forget, after I became a Christian and felt the call to ministry, the pastor at my home church, his name was Knox Lambert. And one, one night, he told me after prayer meeting, he said, Herbert, would you like to go? There was an elderly lady. Her name was Sophie Bronson. She had been in our church. She was 90-something years old. She had never married. She had been just completely faithfully and totally committed to the Lord. She passed on some books that her father, who was a preacher, had used to me. And Knox Lambert said, she's dying. Would you like to go with me to visit in a home? And I said, yes, but I really didn't mean to say yes. You know how you say yes to something? You really don't mean it? I was afraid. I don't want to be around somebody who is dying. We walked into her room. She was at home. And there was a sitter with her. And I've never sensed peace in a room 
and in a person's heart like there was in Sophie Bronson. She was getting ready to leave this earth, but she knew what was awaiting her. She saw, I believe, just as Stephen did, the Lord God who created her and the Lord God who was calling her and the Savior who was sitting at the Lord God's right hand bidding her to come on. And there was a peace. And I think Paul was never able to get this out of his heart and mind that as he witnessed Stephen, and I'm sure other Christians dying, he saw a peace in them. Is there something in life worth dying for? And Jesus Christ was to Stephen and those early Christians. And I'm sure that Paul saw that and he struggled with it. Even as he was killing other Christians and having them in prison, he did not have the peace in his heart and the assurance that God would be waiting for him, even though outwardly he knew he was such a great theological person. He knew. He knew all the right answers as as Lee prayed earlier, but he didn't know the Savior. And I wonder if the Holy Spirit of God during those five or six or seven days that it took Paul to travel from Jerusalem to Damascus if God was not dealing with Paul. And he couldn't get that picture of Stephen's peace as he died out of his mind. And folks, I wonder later on when Paul would know that he himself was facing death he would write in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul found something in Jesus Christ that gave him peace in life and in death. Folks, I, I just wonder if all this was going on. But back to Acts chapter 9, we're finally going to get there. In verses 1 and 2, Paul's anger and hostility toward Christians is growing. You remember last week we read uh, chapter 8, verse 3 out of the Living Bible. Paul was like a wild man going everywhere to devastate the believers. To the early Christians, this was a wild man like a wild animal. And he's breathing threats and murders. Make no doubt about it. Paul sought to kill all who followed Jesus. But folks, that brings up another question. Why did Paul have such hate in his heart for the followers of Jesus? You know, I'd really not thought about that. Why was Paul so angry and hostile toward Christians? Well, I I don't mean to treat you like children and read out of a commentary, but... But I, I just, you know, I keep saying Warren Wiersbe. I love Warren Wiersbe. And let me, let me just read a paragraph. Had you stopped Paul and asked his reasons for persecuting Christians, he might have said something like this. Now listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth is dead, Paul would have said. Do you expect me to believe that a crucified nobody is the promised Messiah? According to our law, anybody who is hung on a tree is cursed. That's Deuteronomy 21, 23. Would God take a cursed false prophet and make him the Messiah? No, his followers are preaching that Jesus is both alive and doing miracles through them. But their power comes from Satan, not God. This is a dangerous sect, and I intend to eliminate it before it destroys our historic Jewish faith. You see, the Apostle Paul thought that Jesus was an imposter, that Jesus had died on a cross outside of Jerusalem, and that his believers had cropped up stories about him being raised from the dead. 
And so he was trying his best to wipe out every Christian in every church. But folks, in spite of Paul's great learning, Paul is spiritually blind. Paul did not understand what the Old Testament taught about the Messiah. And like many in his day, he did not understand the cross. And I want to say that again, folks, and I want you to really think about this. Do you and I fully understand what the cross means to us? The cross is the only way through which we can enter into the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And folks, Paul didn't understand until Acts 9 what the cross meant. There were many people that were crucified on a cross, many criminals who were crucified on crosses. But this is the Son of God that died that day. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 23, and I wish you would look later today in that first chapter as Paul is trying to describe how important the cross is to us. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. But he says, that is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And I'm sure there are still people in our world today who say, how can you believe in someone who died on a cross 2,000 years ago? Well, folks, I believe in him because like Paul, I've met him and he is alive. And that changed Paul's life. Acts 9 is that watershed moment in Paul's life when this man that he thought had been put to death outside of Jerusalem and buried in a tomb and was proclaimed as a resurrected Lord was an imposter, a false prophet, a nobody. But Paul met him that day. And guess what? Jesus Christ was alive. And Paul found out not through his own self-righteous religion, but through faith in that man who is the Son of God in the Christ. And folks, as you read, again, I can't do justice to this passage of Scripture. As you read, and I'm getting ahead of myself, as you read toward the end of these verses that we've read in Acts 9, who who does Paul say Jesus is? He is the Son of God and He's the Savior of the world. That's verse 20 and 21. I'm getting ahead of myself, I know. But folks, do you see the change? In verse 3, as Paul journeyed, In the very midst of Paul's sin and rebellion and hostility against God, this is Paul's divine appointment to meet Jesus, the living God. And and Luke says, suddenly, folks, unexpected to say the least. And folks, listen to this. And this to me is, is so important. A light from heaven flashed about him. And please notice that the origin of this light is where? Heaven. This light comes from heaven. And folks, just stop and think about this for just a minute. Paul is an educated Jew. He is a Pharisee. He is a student of Gamaliel. You remember we said all that last week. And folks, that meant that Paul knew the Old Testament. Paul knew the theology. And I hate to use the word theology. It's not not really a big word, but it means the study of God. Paul knew the study of God in the Old Testament. And as you and I think back about the Old Testament, there are times when God reveals his presence and it is symbolized by what? Light. And let me give you some examples of that. When the Hebrew people 
go to meet God at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, verse 16. There is thunders and lightnings. And all the people gathered there knew that they were in the presence of God. And they were afraid to go up on the mountain. And they, they wanted Moses to hear from God, not them, because they knew they were in the presence of God. As they began to travel throughout the wilderness, God would reveal his presence by a cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night, a light. When God told them to build the tabernacle, the presence of God was known as the glory of God filled the temple. So often in the Old Testament, God would send fire to consume the offerings of the people. In the book of Leviticus, in one of the great uh, stories in the Old Testament that you would know about is 1 Kings 18, where the people had begun to worship Baal. You remember the story? It's at Mount Carmel. And Elijah says, you've got to choose this day whom you're going to serve, either God Almighty or the gods of the Baals. And here's the contest. And I'm not trying to preach on that story, but you remember the, the prophets of Baal. They set up an altar. They, they put uh, an offering to their God Baal on it. And they asked Baal to send down fire. And guess what? Nothing happened. And I'm going to cut to the chase on this story. Elijah said, build the altar, put the sacrifice there, put water on it. And they washed it down. They, they soaked the altar with water. They dug a trench around it to hold the water. And Elijah prayed, and God sent fire from heaven, and it consumed. You remember that story? And everybody said, we'll serve God. He's got to be the God. Baal didn't answer, but our God did. He sent this fire down. Folks, in the Old Testament, fire and light, dazzling light, lightning represented the presence of God. Even Isaiah, as he is talking about the coming of the Messiah, says the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep, deepest darkness, on them light has shined. Here is my point. In the Old Testament, light, dazzling light, lightning serves as symbols of the presence of God. And guess who Jesus said he is in John eight twelve. And Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And folks, I don't have this scripture on the overhead because before Fran typed this up, it hadn't occurred to me. But you remember the story of, of Peter, James, and John being taken by Jesus to the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember that story? And Jesus is transfigured before them. This is what Matthew says, and I'll give you the verse, the chapter and verse, in case you want to write it down. Matthew 17, 2. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. And his garments became white as light. Peter, James, and John knew they were in the presence of God. Folks, let me tell you something. That day, that day, Paul knew that he stood in the presence of the living God. Folks, it's time for me to wind down. I know that. I'm not going to ask you to give me just a couple more minutes because let me tell you something. Paul is telling us, I met Jesus. And just as Stephen said, he's alive. Folks, can I prove that to you today? I can only prove that 
from the word of God, from the witness of other Christians that are gathered here. I hope you'll believe my witness that I met Jesus as a teenager and he's very much alive. He wants to change your life. And folks, I hope you're not saying, well, I'm unworthy of being saved. Let me tell you, Paul said I was the chief of sinners. Paul says if there's ever been a way that you could judge who was the most sinful person on the planet, it was me. But guess what? God saved me. His very own son revealed himself to me. That's what Jesus wants to do to you today. And I want to especially say this morning, if you've not yet come to Jesus, he's not a dead Jesus that a stupid church is worshiping. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the one who shed his blood so that you and I could be born into the kingdom of God. And we could become a new creation. That's why I go back to 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Paul said, he released me. The dynamite of the love of God blew away my sins at the cross. And he made me a new man in Jesus Christ. Maybe you need that new creation. You can only find it in Jesus. You know, we talk about joining the church, being baptized. But folks, all of that is... Nothing until you meet the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the account of Paul's conversion. His coming to know your son is his personal savior. And Lord, I pray today that the same light from heaven might shine in this sanctuary. And I pray that if there's someone here, whether they would be a young person or a young adult or even a senior citizen who is waiting for that moment when you would just speak to their heart in a way that they would fully understand it's not the words of a preacher or it's not a church worship service, but it is the living Lord who was crucified on a cross that shed his blood for all of us that it is he that is speaking to their heart today. And, Father, I pray that if you are doing that, that the person you're speaking to or the persons would be willing to repent of sin, to acknowledge that they are lost just as Paul was. But now they believe in that man who died on the cross because he was not simply a man. He was the Son of God and the Savior of the world. So I pray just as Paul came to faith, Lord, that you'll help them to do that too. Thank you again, Lord Jesus, for dying for each one of us. And thank you, Father, for that divine appointment when you made yourself known to us. Lord, have your way and your will in these moments of invitation. In Jesus' name, amen.